0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Beloved, well, let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 23, the verses 1 to 15 as well as 33 to 36 You'll notice that in this chapter called The Seven Woes, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to his disciples about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so they must obey them. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And then we move down to verse 33. You snakes... You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, I tell you the truth. All of this will come upon this generation. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it at the end of Matthew 23. Verses 37, 38, and thirty nine O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Note the words, all scripture is God-breathed and useful. Is that really true? Is that correct? Is that right? Now, I'm sure most of you would reply to these questions with an emphatic, yes, of course, it's true and correct and right. This is God's Word that we are speaking about. Fine, but then if this is true, why do we so often adopt a selective attitude when it comes to the reading and the studying of the Word of God? Why do we prefer the New Testament over the Old Testament? Why do we bypass the book of Leviticus? Why do we skip over all of those genealogies? Why do we ignore the prophetic parts of the Old Testament? Why do we pretend that the prophetic parts are too gloomy? And why do we say that and not read it that the Song of Songs is too sexual? Whoever said that there are no Bible critics among us? And who among us dares to say that our treatment of Scripture is always correct? Always kosher? Yes, and that brings us to our text of this morning. We've read together a good part of Matthew 23, and doesn't it just about make your jaw drop? You read it, and after you read it, you say to yourself, did the Lord Jesus really say that? Is that really in the Bible? Did He actually use this kind of language? We're not supposed to, perhaps, but we all have this image of the Lord Jesus, right? This image in our minds of Jesus as gentle, loving, forgiving, compassionate, understanding, tolerant, patient. He always seems to watch his words and use them with care. He repeatedly knows just what to say to people. He's a fantastic wordsmith and a parable constructor and builder beyond compare. But then we come to Matthew 23 and we're introduced to another side of our savior. It's a side which reveals that at times he can also be very bold, outspoken, brutally honest, and politically incorrect in a most stunning fashion. All in all, this chapter, and some others as well, force us to ask ourselves, do I really know my Savior? Or have I perhaps opted for a one-sided, sanitized Savior To my liking, have I failed to see the real, total, complete Savior as revealed in the Gospels? Beloved, all of this is surely a good enough reason to have a closer look at our text of this morning. So I preached to you on the theme, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And we'll see that our text reveals, first of all, a terrible indictment, thereafter a tender longing, and finally a transcendent prophecy. Well, beloved, as far as the church calendar is concerned, and you can see that as well, we are into the season of Lent. The season of Christ's sufferings, trial, crucifixion, and death. This Friday will be Good Friday. Next Sunday will be Easter Sunday. And in light of that, it's only natural that we turn our attention this morning to some of the words that the Lord Jesus used during this time, just before his actual arrest. And so some of those words that he used can be found here in Matthew 23, as well as in parallel passages. And as a matter of fact, these are really the last words which the Lord Jesus addressed to the crowds that were following him. And what kind of words are they? Well, first of all, you can say they are words of lament. You can catch that right away when the Lord Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, whenever our Lord Jesus repeats himself like this, and he does it more often, you may recall. For example, he says, Martha, Martha. And later on, he will say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And whenever he talks like that, you know something is up. You know, these are words of, of concern, words of tenderness words of heartache, and words of love. But then notice, no sooner does he say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that the words of heartache are followed by words of severe indictment. For immediately he adds, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. In other words, the Jerusalem over which Jesus laments is filled with murderers and violent men. It contains those who do away with God's prophets and God's ambassadors. And this is nothing new. From the way that the Lord Jesus speaks, and you immediately sense that this is not a new development. It's rather a very old development, that for a long, long time, Jerusalem has been doing this. And so who specifically is Jesus referring to? Well, he mentions names. Names that people know about, names like Abel, names like Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And in a way, Abel and Zechariah are like two bookends. And between those two bookends, there have been many murders and many stonings of God's prophets, God's servants. I'm sure the Lord Jesus, if he had wanted to, could have added the name of John the Baptist to the list. And soon he could add his own name to the list and the name of Stephen and James and others. (laughs) Jerusalem, which should be receptive ground. It should be the most inviting city in all of the world. It should be rolling out the welcome mat for all the prophets and the servants of God. And it should be embracing those prophets and servants with enthusiasm and excitement, with eagerness and anticipation, with rejoicing and love. But alas, that is not the case. And why not? Well, so much of the answer can be found in what comes before our text. On this morning, for there our Lord and Savior takes on the Jewish leadership in a most direct and forthright manner. Notice, it's the Jewish leadership that he is indicting. And I stress that because there are some commentators who claim that these words of the Lord Jesus Christ are actually anti-Semitic. Supposedly, these accusing words of his somehow express a hatred for the Jewish people as a whole. But what silliness! For what our Lord is doing here is not condemning his own people. Because after all, he himself is a Jew. But rather his dispute is with the leadership in Israel. He begins Matthew 23 by targeting the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he singles them out repeatedly in the verses 13, 15, 23, 27, 29. And not only does he single them out, but he also denounces them. He calls them hypocrites over and over again. Verse 13, 15, 23, 25, 27, 29. Blind guides, verse 16, 24. Blind fools, verse 17. Blind men, verse 19. Snakes, verse 33. And a brood of vipers. And the same verse. And you thought the Lord Jesus didn't have a temper? You thought that anger was not part of his personality profile? Wow. To be on the receiving end of this tirade is to make your ears burn and your shoulders slump and your hearts quiver. What a tongue lashing. What an indictment. But why? Why is Jesus so angry? More than anything else, it has to do with the fact that he sees these leaders as terrorizing God's people. Instead of helping them, serving them, teaching them, comforting them, assisting them, they are doing the very opposite. Instead of being true shepherds, they are false shepherds. By their interpretation and application of the Jewish law, they are loading the people down with legalistic burdens and depressing them. By their majoring in minors, they are bypassing the essentials of the gospel. And because of their greed, they exploit the people. They twist the precepts of God. They live lives filled with hypocrisy. They externalize everything. They claim to be righteous. And meanwhile, they have the blood of the prophets dripping off their hands. In short, beloved, a a simple, straightforward reading of the words of the Lord Jesus cannot help But make it very clear, he's not against the Jews as such. But he's against their crooked leadership. And indeed, he's against all crooked leadership in the church, both then and now. Sometimes we people glamorize leadership. Oh, what I would give to be a leader, be it in the state... Business, or even in the church. That's something that many covet. But nevertheless, what is often forgotten is that along with leadership comes responsibility as well as burdens. For there is no doubt that God holds leaders to a different and a higher standard. And at the same time, the people hold their leaders to a different and higher standard. You saw that again last week in connection with that sordid incident involving the governor of New York State. And that's how it should be. Only that doesn't always make life easy for those who are in leadership. For it means refusing to let power and the accoutrements of power go to your head. It means telling yourself over and over again that you're a servant, not a master. It means touching base repeatedly with the basics of your office. And as for Christians, Christian ministers, and Christian elders, and deacons, it means walking humbly with your God every day. Your office is a sacred trust. Oh, and if you abuse the prerogatives of your office, then do not think that Jesus will simply gloss over your sins and turn a blind eye to them. The great shepherd of the sheep is very demanding when it comes to the teachings, the lifestyle, and the examples of his under-shepherds. And you do not want to be on the receiving end of his holy displeasure. But then, beloved, if our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can be mightily displeased and very scathing in his language towards abusive leaders, you can also be extremely tender Towards his people. As we said earlier, you can hear the note of pain and sadness in those words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you know, you can also hear it in those subsequent words, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How often. Had he not invited the people of Israel to come to him and find rest? How many of their sick had he not healed? How many of their ignorant had he not enlightened? How many times had he not urged them to knock and to ask and to seek and they would surely find And how insistently had he not taught and urged them to turn to him in faith and so enjoy the gifts of forgiveness, righteousness, fellowship, eternal life? How full of compassion did he not speak to them? And notice as well, he doesn't just speak to them as a prophet. No prophet has ever been so bold as to assert how often I have longed. That's not the language of man. That's the language of God. Of God desiring, of God longing, of God yearning. Of God reaching out. And at the same time, it's also very striking language. Jesus compares himself to an animal, to a hen. He even compares himself to a female animal. He describes himself as being like a mother hen who wants nothing more than to gather all of her chicks, all of her people together under his protective shade. And his almighty arms. When oh, you would think that all of this love and all of this concern and all of this compassion would meet with a ready response from the people. But it isn't so. For after describing himself as a mother hen wanting to gather his chicks, he adds these Fateful words, but you were not willing. How awful, how sad, how tragic. During Lent we concentrate on the suffering of the Lord Jesus and surely part of those sufferings can be found in these words, but you were not willing. Here I gave up my glory in heaven and I became man for you, but you were not willing. Here I let myself be born in utter poverty and laid to rest in an animal feeding trough for you, but you were not willing. Here I agreed to go to a backward place like Nazareth for you, but you were not willing. Here I committed myself to be baptized by John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance for you, but you were not willing. Here I came preaching and healing for you, but you were not willing. And here I am taking all of this abuse for you, and soon I'm going to be arrested, accused, mocked, tortured, and crucified for you. But you were not willing. Oh, what ugly words! Jesus, the great shepherd, is willing, but his sheep are not willing. Can you imagine the pain that that caused him? The distress and the sorrow? No wonder that Isaiah prophesies about himself and his people, but, and says, but we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. And yet, in spite of that, Isaiah goes on to say, he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. In spite of our human blindness and unwillingness, Christ went on. He went on in in obedience to the Father. And he went on for the sake of the salvation of his people. And that includes you and I as well. How often is there not a sense in which we too refuse to be gathered? How often do we not fail to heed the call of the Lord, our Savior? How often do we not insist on our own way, our own agendas, instead of His way and His agenda? Not just the sin of Jewish unwillingness But also the sin of Gentile unwillingness was paid for on the cross. How do we know that? How could we be sure of that? Well, read on. First, the Lord says next that a time of desolation is coming. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again. Now, beloved, there is a lot of debate about what is meant by the words, your house. Do they refer to the city of Jerusalem? Do they refer to the temple in Jerusalem? Perhaps the best answer is simply to say that, in a sense, these words refer to both When the master of the house leaves, the house is empty. Well, here the king of Jerusalem is leading. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek is leaving. Indeed, here the Messiah of Israel is leaving. And the result? Desolation. What does that mean? Well, it means that a time of judgment is now coming to Israel. There is a cost to be paid for turning your back on the Messiah, for rejecting Him and crucifying Him. There's always a cost to be paid when we reject God's will and way and pursue our own ways. And Israel will pay it. For a time, the gospel will continue to go out to God's ancient covenant people, but then when they refuse to hear it, it will go elsewhere, it will go to the Gentiles. But not only that, for when the gospel leaves, extreme Jewish nationalism takes over. And then what happens? And the land becomes filled with heady dreams of freedom and and the taking on of the Romans and, and obtaining an independent place among the nations. But it doesn't happen. If you know your history, you know that prior to 70 AD, the Jews rebelled and the Romans came. And along with the Romans came a huge desolation. The armies of Israel were defeated. The city of Jerusalem was conquered. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the people of Israel were scattered. Desolation comes upon the Jewish people. Here are the dire consequences of Jesus' prediction. Look, your house is left desolate. But is that the end of the story? No, for Jesus says more. He says, I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? You know, most commentators take it as a negative word, a word of judgment. They interpret Jesus' last words in our text as saying, look, you've you've had your chance, but you lost it. And the result is that now when I come again, you will be forced to acknowledge me as the Messiah of Israel. Whether you want to or not, you will be compelled to bow your knees and confess me as Lord. You'll have no choice in the matter. God Almighty will deal with your stubbornness once and for all. Thus, what many say we have here is a word of justice and a word of vindication. That's one view. However, there is another. It's a minority view, but I think it makes A lot of sense. Much more sense. It's the view which sees these last words of our Lord Jesus here in our text as being actually words of welcome and acclaim. In other words, he's saying today, today you are not willing to accept me as your Messiah. However, a day is coming When a remnant will arise among you who will look for my coming and even greet my coming with faith. And then the words of Psalm 118 will be on your lips and on your hearts. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't greet me today. You don't rejoice in me today. You don't welcome me today, but a day is coming when you will greet me and rejoice over me and you will welcome me with open arms and eager hearts. In other words, beloved, the words of the Lord Jesus here lend support to what Scripture teaches elsewhere. Namely, there's a day coming when the hardening that has come to Israel will be lifted. And then a believing remnant from Israel and a believing remnant from the nations will come together. And so all Israel will be saved. Obviously, in Jesus' own day, the welcome mat was not out among the leaders of Israel and also among most of the people. He came to his own, John writes, but his own received him not. Judgment is coming to the house of Israel. But there is life after judgment. There will be life for those whom God has chosen. There will be life for the remnant. There will be life and joy and greeting. Many will shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After indictment and judgment come salvation and come the king. Of salvation. Yes, beloved, he comes. He comes for the Jews and he comes for the Gentiles. He comes for all who believe. Who confess him as their gracious Savior and their abounding Lord. And may all of those who confess him, may that also include us. Who are gathered here together this morning. May we confess Him, welcome Him, embrace Him in faith every day. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we have to admit that to some extent we are shocked this morning, shocked by the kind of language that our Savior uses and the kind of emotions that he displays. But yet, Father, also this is part and parcel of our Savior, for not only is a Savior full of compassion, but he's also a Savior full of righteousness. Not only is he a Savior full of love, but he's also a Savior full of holiness. And Father, may we realize that. May we have a complete picture, a complete biblical picture of our Savior. And Father, may we also realize that still today, the Savior calls us, calls us to follow him calls us to build our life on his promises, his redeeming work, all that he has done. And that at the same time, this Savior calls us not only to faith, but also to anticipation. For one day soon, he's coming back. And may all of us be among those who shout, And proclaim, Blessed indeed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord our God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.